Alright guys, welcome to another episode of the Type 1 Lifting Podcast. I have an amazing guest. This is Connor Clancy. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. How's everything going? Of course, thanks for having me. Much yeah. appreciated. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm finally glad we connected. We actually uh, have a mutual friend that kind of connected us that I used to work with at the hospital and she told me about you and I was like, okay, I got I got to check him out and then like after that we've always been contacting via DM or you know, writing comments in each other's posts, you know, and just never had yeah, a chance man. to talk and per- talk face to face, but I'm really glad we're doing that right now. Yeah, man, me too. The uh it seems like the type 1 world is actually pretty connected, which is cool, especially people type one and fitness strength conditioning that type of stuff it's a pretty small population so it's kind of cool to connect and have those relationships with people yeah awesome so um when did you get diagnosed and like how long ago was that i was diagnosed in september of 2004 so right at the beginning of seventh grade so like a month into middle school so that was awesome (laughs) um i uh actually my neighbors the people sharing our backyard wall with had two kids one was my age one my little brother's age both type ones which is kind of weird and so my mom and their mom are pretty good friends and i was peeing a lot drinking a bunch of water and it only went for a couple weeks and my mom took me in and later on she said yeah you know charlie and carly's mom had told me about the symptoms and you started drinking so much water and peeing and stuff and i was like oh i know what this is so Kind of relatively early, I went. When I went in, my blood sugar was like 400, which isn't good, but not crazy, crazy like some of the diagnoses stories you hear. So, mm-hmm. uh, the transition was actually not that hard, I suppose, being young, because I had no decisions for myself. I wasn't grocery shopping. I wasn't making choices on what to eat. So my parents were like, "All right, well, here's what you eat now. You don't eat pasta because it's harder on you and us, and you eat a lot of meat." and vegetables so it was kind of nice it was easy to build habits that early because you have no choice yeah exactly and it was it was it was not you know what the transition besides the whole like being a, a kid and being embarrassed unnecessarily thing the transition wasn't that crazy it was just like well i guess i gotta because i gotta do these shots now yeah. I do this stuff now. And how how did you handle the shots at like at like in seventh grade and stuff? Did did it bother you, you know at all? Or I'm not not too bad. I, I'm not. I wasn't afraid of needles or anything. I was more embarrassed. Like I didn't want to be sitting like in the cafeteria and like launching out a syringe and doing it. So that was a little bit weird. And doing it in public was kind of funky and uncomfortable. But in and of itself, it wasn't too bad. I'm not like I said, not afraid of shots or anything. My friends were always like wanting to watch and like, oh, look at it, uh, look at, let me see. So that was interesting. Yeah. But it was it was not that bad. Looking back now with all the technology that is available and the stuff that I wear now, it would have been even easier then with that stuff. But it wasn't. It actually was not too too bad. Yeah. So I I actually my wife always likes watch even my kids they like watching me like inject insulin all the time. They're like, can I see you then like. When I put when I stick the needle in, they're like, "Ooh, ooh, I don't know, I can't look at it anymore." <laughs> but I know, I yeah. know. One, that's funny because a lot of people will say, "Man, I don't know what I would do if I was in your situation. I don't like needles." 
And it's like, hey, if you're in this situation, you'd be fine with it because otherwise you would die. So I think you'd be, I think you'd be fine. Yeah. Well, there, I I read in the article, uh, I forget from who, but there was a diabetic who was afraid of needles, and she wouldn't take her insulin, and she pretty much died as in a in a DKA coma because she wouldn't take her insulin because she was she was afraid of shots, which is that's, I think is insane. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. And so. That's awful, man. Yeah. I mean, I. I don't understand. I mean, you want to live and I mean, you're going to have to suffer, like just deal with it. Just try to deal with it. You know, yeah. it's a little prick and then just go for it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, you might not like needles, but when it's a balance, you know, oh, I don't like needles. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be dead. It's, I don't know. It seems like it'd be kind of a thing. And I'm sure there are some people who are like, you know what? I don't like needles, but I also like to, I like, like living. So, and then you, they probably get over it pretty quick. Yeah. I guess I was you not being afraid of needles. You don't seem like you're probably afraid of needles either. No. Well, I mean, I got diagnosed at 34, like a month before my 35th birthday. So it's it was it's a it was a huge change for me. Like you know, going into the earlier stages of life. So yep. compared to being a kid, I can't imagine like being a kid, especially with uh, you know being like two years old and all of a sudden getting diagnosed oh, or yeah. like anything like that. So it's just it's insane. So, but uh, oh yeah. Did you? I know, I, the kids, kids who get diagnosed as babies, where it's the it's the, the baby's got diabetes, but it's the parents who are the ones treating it, not the kid yet. Yeah, that would be wild. Injecting your kids and pricking your kid baby's finger and stuff. That would be. Yeah, I, that'd be way harder. I would much rather do it, have to do it for myself, than have to do it for like a baby. That'd be. Yeah, I so I I always worried about my kids getting it, but we actually they have an early test now where you could do a blood test and then send it off and they can tell you if they have the like the genes or whatever for that to get diabetes. So luck yeah. I think um later since I got it later on in life there's a you know they're less susceptible to getting diabetes. So yeah. which is, you know, which I'm yeah. very grateful for. Yeah. And I and I've seen a couple little things and the percentage chances of having a type 1 diabetic child with like one type 1 diabetic parent, both type 1 diabetic parents. And even like the highest percent chance is like four percent if they're both like early diagnosed type one. So it's very small, which is cool. Yeah, it's cool. But I guess you know if you're if you have if you're type one and you have a kid who's type one, I guess that kid has a pretty good role model. And I guess of any, if of anybody, you're kind of the best suited to to help out with it. Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. So um, obviously you, you you definitely played sports when you were in like middle school and stuff like that. So how did how did your parents and coaches handle you know your diabetes throughout playing sports through like you know all the way to college? You know I was actually pretty lucky. I I don't remember having any coaches who weren't understanding. I think a lot of them were pretty understanding because they might not have completely understood. So they didn't want to overstep in the territory that they didn't really know. But as far as with like me and my parents playing, I never had like a crazy, crazy low. I remember for one hockey game, my blood sugar was like 29. I hadn't really felt it much because I had adrenaline, whatever. But I always did until high school have one of my parents at least at every game or practice and holding Gatorade. And if I was low, I can still remember like at hockey practice, like skater, I'm looking at my dad and doing the signal and he'd come down and give me a Gatorade. So that was a big... <laughs> That was a big thing, and there was always Gatorades on the bench. And I, that's one thing I remember every coach I ever had, hockey and baseball, like, hey, the Gatorades are Clancy's medicine. 
that's not for you guys to drink. Think of that as Advil or ibuprofen. That's medicine for him. Don't touch it. So that was cool. So Gatorade's been kind of my, even still now, if I'm low, it's Gatorade. So I, I, that was the, that's kind of the biggest memory I have of like youth sports as far as diabetes goes. The always having Gatorade, like one of my parents having extra Gatorade. And my coaches, I don't remember a time when any of them weren't understanding. There were a couple times that I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't try to pride myself on it, but sometimes I'm kind of like a hard ass, like not make the best decision. There were some times when I was probably should have gone and like drank a Gatorade, but I didn't want to look like a wuss. Yeah. And I think in hindsight, my coaches probably would have said, dude, yeah, of course you have this autoimmune disorder. Go drink a Gatorade. We'd rather have you drink a Gatorade and sit out for a minute and a half than pass out and we need to bring an ambulance out here yeah definitely yeah but yeah man it was until until high school my parents were always there once i was in high school i'd had it for long enough and i actually had a high school baseball teammate who was also type one so that was kind of cool um but yeah besides the gatorades all the time it actually i guess wasn't too hard my control i don't remember what my a1c's were but i i could i'd be willing to bet any amount of money that they were not as good as they are now so I, I probably could have done better in that regard, but it, in my memory, it was okay. I'd never had any emergencies, never had anything crazy, crazy. Yeah. It was interesting. I, one of my, I remember one of my teammates not wanting to share a water bottle because he asked me to get diabetes. So I remember that. Was the, I was when I was like 11 or 12, like right when I was diagnosed. And it's funny because the kid is actually in his trauma surgery residency in San Diego right now so oh. he's like the smartest guy I ever played with yeah I asked that the dumbest question and it was like man I if, if any of his patients ever knew like oh he thought that like that type 1 diabetes was communicable maybe I don't <laughs> want to do <doing> surgery <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome so um did you I obviously played babes you didn't play a hockey in college it was just baseball no, correct no, just baseball okay so I know you went to University of Arizona for a little bit then moved yep. to like two other schools so yep. how was your um, when you're playing baseball with those schools like how was that like interacting with your teammates or in your coaches and like the per- and the trainers what was that like so in college I guess in high school there was a little more of the athletic trainer aspect in college now it's like, all right, you've got not only your tutors, you've got your coaching staff, your tutors, your strength coaches, all that stuff, but now you've got this like badass athletic training staff. So once I got to college, it was kind of a it was a positive change, but we had this athletic training staff and like a specific assistant holding Gatorades, holding stuff for me, like reminding me to hey, like remember you're testing in between every inning, doing this, blah blah blah, like helping me monitor, almost like a. It, it was almost honestly like having like a, almost like one of the PAs at like my endocrinologist mm-hmm. sitting in the dugout all the time and at practice. So it was a really nice positive change because I didn't really have to think about it anymore. I mean, I still did and I should be happy, but you got this athletic trainer at U of A, the assistant, and it's like have my I was like my mom was there, like always on me, which is good, always on me, always thinking about it, making sure I was my levels were good, making sure I had Gatorade, making sure this, but so it kind of took it out of my hands, which was nice. 
and teammates a lot of at this point it seems like a lot of guys have come in contact or had a buddy or a teammate or something at some point that had type 1 so it's not really weird for anybody anymore I guess it's still kind of weird the first time someone sees you like inject yourself yeah yeah but I would say up of anything, the the biggest adjustment in college was figuring out how to drink with type one <laughs> on field on field in the weight room stuff was was pretty relatively easy. Um, coaching staff was cool with it. It was a difference leaving U of A and then transferring to junior college for that little in between year before I went to Division one again. That was interesting because I kind of got used to the like. Pac-12, Division One treatment, and I go to junior college, and junior college is like, there's no, like, you practice eight hours a day, there's no requirements, you get run, you get yelled at, you get sworn at, you get, and so I go back to junior college, and it's like, wait, I'm used to having, I'm used to having so-and-so, the athletic trainer, like, handling my stuff, carrying my stuff, packing my stuff for road trips, doing other and I go to junior college, and it's like, Oh yeah, I, I got to do it on my own now. I got to do it on my own again. <laughs> yep, yeah. I pl- so I played Division three lacrosse, basketball, okay. and football. So, uh, I but I played lacrosse like all four years because uh, all the con- I started getting concussions and it was just like a bad new- bad news. So I just played <sighs> lacrosse the whole time. But yeah, it was like pretty much fend fend for yourself and like here, just grab all your stuff and like you have to manage everything. And I I can't imagine like being a D one athlete and and it's like pretty much getting pampered all the- all the time. So, dude. It really is. And I was very excited to go back. Junior college was fun. It was fun. Go back to Division One. It was the same thing. Even smaller school is, you know, the same, same treatment. You got the athletic, the athletic training staff, like, always in your corner, helping out with everything, packing stuff, making sure you got everything straightened out. So it was very different, the Division One to Division One junior college high school and all different levels of attention Pro- probably not something good to get used to yeah Division one uh, treatment because mm-hmm. you start like well i don't know i'm not going to test but, but so-and-so hasn't told me yet i'm not going to worry about it yet she's my doctor right now so it was it was cool it was a really easy transition to division one because i stopped having to do stuff yeah which in hindsight Probably not the best had I just completely been like, all right, not my job anymore, your job. But it was it was cool. Yeah, it was nice. So did you did you have like a CGM or anything like that or a pump while you were in college at all? So they no man, I actually the summer I switched from just normal syringes and whatever to the like reloadable that like kids Novolog pump the yeah. blue one with the swirly colors. And mm-hmm. I don't know, my freshman year of high school. And I kept using that, kept using just a normal, like, testing kit until I came home for summer. I didn't play summer ball the year after JUCO because I was going back on the recruiting stuff and visiting places. And I tried the Omnipod, and I loved it, but I was like, all right, I got to make sure and try to beat this thing up to see if it's going to stay on me. And I couldn't find a place, so I was going out and, like, taking ground balls and doing stuff and, like, trying to dive all the time and make sure like hey I've, i'm trying to peel this thing off i want to test it to make sure it's going to stay on 
and I hadn't found out about skin tack yet, which I use now. Yeah. And so I, I had a couple that ripped off like diving and sliding and stuff. I said, you know what? I'm going to stay with the pen just because I don't want anything stuck on me. and I don't have to worry about it falling off. Yeah. Yeah. So until I was done with college, I had never worn a CGM. I tried the Omnipods for like two weeks or whatever. And I think that was a big difference when I finally was done playing baseball and was, and I had kind of told myself as soon as I've done playing baseball, whenever that is, I want to get into this cool technology stuff. Mm -hmm. So within a year of finishing playing baseball, boom, switched over, got the Omnipod back, started with the Dexcom. And I was like, man, if I would have been wearing this in college, it would have been way easier, especially with the sharing capabilities of the Dexcom and stuff. It would have been really, really easy, but I would have ripped through all those prescriptions yeah, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. knocked off and ripped off and stuff so yeah. I was no log pen and testing kit until it's 20 almost 24 awesome yeah I, I'm still on the pen right now I haven't changed yet so I've been doing it for <laughs> five years I'm like if, if if it's not broke don't fix it and so yeah, I've, exactly. I've, I've tried exactly. the Li- I've tried the Libre didn't like it and it just yeah so I'm just like sticking with this my wife wants me to get on the, the insulin pump like real bad, but I'm like, I don't, I don't really need it right now. So especially yeah, see, exactly. And the, the pump, the Omnipod, I, I really like the Omnipod, but before I knew about that, the idea of a tubed pump just super, super turned me off. Mm-hmm. Cause like, what do you do when you sleep? What do you do when you shower? And it disconnected all the time. And I, I obviously don't know a, a ton about the tube ones because I've never worn one. But just the first thought of that was like, that sounds like a pain in the ass. I don't want to have that. I don't want that hanging off me all the time. Yeah. And I always see people no. ripping it off too. So, and it's just yeah. like, I'm not going to waste money on, like, if I rip it off, I have to spend more money no. to just get more tubes. So, well, I know. And yeah, if- I know exactly. It gets stuck on a doorknob. It gets the guy, can I play with a high school war one? He got it hanging out in his pocket. He was a pitcher. So he said, it's a little bit easier. I'm not like sliding. I'm not diving. I'm not doing as much stuff but if i was going around and having to sign in the bases and stuff i probably wouldn't be wearing it yeah yeah exactly so while you were in and it was it wolford right yeah and so what was what was like the training facilities like and like what were your typical workouts when playing baseball like so at wofford u of a was great their strength staff is great i I actually think this, the head guy that was there when I was there is still the one that's there. At Wofford, when I came in, they just hired a new head SNC coach to oversee everything. Um, he'd come from University of Memphis. His name was Josh Medler. Super badass, awesome dude, love the guy. Um, actually, one of the reasons probably that I committed there out of junior college because I visited, checked out the facilities. They were awesome, especially at Wofford's. A, small small school like mid-major division one in the socon small school so i didn't really know what to expect because i've been at u of a and pac-12 facilities whatever so i i step onto this campus gorgeous awesome awesome facilities meet this strength coach he's new awesome dude and then i hadn't met the guy that was overseeing baseball until i actually got to campus for for class and He's another awesome dude. He is an elite FTS guy. So tight and pretty tight with Dave Tate. 
that was kind of his forte played college football um so we trained like a football team the only thing that was different was pitchers would clean pull and snatch pull without a catch because he was like you know having having pitchers having to externally rotate like that to catch a bar yeah they could they probably could do it but why you know, the risk is close to outweighing the reward here? Why why have them do it? Mm-hmm. So the training there was kind of the reason that I got so into strength and conditioning because I was old enough to under start understanding the kind of the like modalities and the reasons and okay, so now I'm understanding like why we're training in these way like progressive overload waves and then taking a week off because the first time we had a deload i remember me and one of my roommates who was kind of another like down home rocco south carolina like meathead type of dude we were like what the hell is this i don't want to come in for this we're at 50 percent squatting to a box why the hell are we doing this i don't want to be this is a waste of my time and so we go through in that first fall semester everybody gets strong the guys that were there the couple of years before and had had different strength staff was like, man, the last couple of years we did like a bunch of speed agility stuff and there was not a whole lot of carryover under the field that we could see. And we get finished with that first fall and these guys who'd been like these seniors who'd been there were like, man, I've never felt as strong going into like a winter break as I am right now. He said it didn't. I've not been, I've not been nearly as strong after this first semester with this new staff that I was the first three years I was here on campus. So that first that first fall at Wofford, as coach's name is Troy Thompson. Awesome dude. He's the head guy at Pace now in New York. Awesome, awesome dude. So it was that first semester working with him and working with Medler, and I was like, man, this stuff is awesome. I love this. And you can actually start to see like, okay, you you plug away at this type of stuff and you're going to see carryover. So it was nice to actually see like, Hey, squatting up, squatting to depth and working on a little bit of like explosive strength versus absolute strength actually has a carryover to the field. Mm. Whereas, you know, in high school, you're trying to see how much you and your buddies can bench and you don't know if it's carrying over to the field or anything. And it's probably not. And, it was nice to actually see like, wow, what we're doing in here helps out there. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Cause usually in high school, everyone's skipping leg day and they always want to work on chest buys and like shoulders and stuff like that. Cause they're always wearing jeans and you're just like, you want to get the big biceps to the weekend. So yeah, I know exactly. Well, and it's, and it's hard cause for, you know, I have a couple of buddies who are like high school strength coaches and it's like, yeah, no matter how good a coach you are, the hardest part is getting buy-in from high school kids who just want who they they want to look jacked, yeah. Which is which is okay, mm-hmm. but a lot more goes into looking jacked. Like looking jacked doesn't help you make the tackle. Like it doesn't it doesn't make you able to like get to the jump ball better than the guy across from you. Mm-hmm. Looking jacked is cool on Instagram, but to get a high schooler to buy into that, they're like, no, I don't I don't care about that. I want big arms. Josh has has a vein in his biceps. I want that. I don't care about. I don't, I don't like box squats. That's stupid. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've when I was personal training at the gym uh, in my area, every, all the kids were like, you know, I want to get jacked and like all that because they see it. That's all I see is on Instagram. Like you said, it's all these guys that are super ripped and they just don't see like 
they look at the athletes and they're like, okay, they're athletes, you know. I mean, even Kevin Durant, I mean, he does personal training. He has, like, personal training, and his ability is, like, amazing, but he's, like, super scrawny. But he, yeah. they train him the right way to actually, like, be his absolute superstar. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, I know. And it's, it's tough with kids. And once you get a kid bought in, then it's easy. But the first step of getting guys, and I even think back to college, and I hate to stereotype, but, like, a lot of times pitchers aren't super, super in to the strength and conditioning stuff, which is understandable. It's like, hey, I got one job, and I got to keep my arm healthy. So I'm a little bit overweight. If I got a gut, who cares? Yeah. If my squat sucks, who cares? If I'm if I'm throwing 95 and I'm getting guys out and my arm is healthy, I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. So that first, that first semester there, too, seeing some guys who were – this kind of stereotypical pitcher type start to buy in and like, yeah, man, I'm noticing like 50 pitches into a bullpen. I'm not nearly as gas as I normally would be. And maybe, maybe doing all these like pulls from the floor and doing all these, like, you know, doing clean pulls and jumping and doing some like actually like programmed running and speed stuff and not just, okay, go run some pulls after your bullpen is actually working. So seeing guys get bought in, help me buy in and for kids it's just hard because the only way to have any buy-in out of a kid is they actually see something work and they're like oh okay i get it like wow i'm throwing a little bit harder now I'm, maybe i should keep doing this yeah it's, it's tough man the, the initial like hey i promise if you do this i promise if you do this and you stick with it for six or 12 months you're gonna be you're gonna do better on the field i guarantee you yeah, and uh, so, so it was was the last year um, of your at, at Wofford. Was it when you got the All American Award? Yeah, that was my senior year. That was that was cool. It was. Uh, I actually, I was thinking about that recently. I feel real. I feel really bad for the kids whose seasons are cut short right now. Yeah, because that last year is fun. It's your last. You know, I. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Somebody... It's okay. Must, must have a delivery. Um, uh, sorry. Um, the uh, the last year of college, even if you're not planning on playing afterwards, it's, a, it's an awesome experience. It's the last time that you're like, hey, I'm like the like the top dog. I'm like the I'm like the top of the totem pole. So I look back at that, and it's like, man, that was an awesome way to finish college. And I think about some of these guys whose season got cut short, and now NCAA is juggling the ideas of letting them come back, but with with or without financial aid or leaving it up to schools or expanding rosters or whatever. It makes me feel bad for some of those kids who, like, you know, last hurrah. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was cool. The All-American thing, I was actually not expecting. I was still on campus. We'd finish season, finish, finish school, and I was starting to pack up to move back because I was moving back here, and like, hey, either way, I'm not going to stay here, so might as well go back to Arizona and either see what happens and sign a contract, draft, whatever. So I'm heading back, getting ready to pack. Got a call from the coach, and I was like, God, why is he still calling me? Am I in trouble about something? Because <laughs> yeah. we had our exit meetings. We had all the stuff already. I was like, oh, no, what is this? Because he's not, not going to call you with good news. And he said, hey, I uh, I think you need to go and check your email. 
right now because I just got a call and they said that they've not had a response yet. And usually they get a response really quick, and I was like, I don't even know shock now. I assumed it was a draft thing. And I went and looked, and it was like, wow, that's insane. I thought I was dreaming. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So, so did you? So, what was your degree in college? Was it like towards the sports and conditioning aspect? No, or? man. My degree is in sociology. Okay. <laughs> so, what made you transition from sociology to like you know, like training? In all honesty, the two years at Wofford and seeing the actual carryover from. true strength and conditioning to performance on the field or and and just in general health performance in your everyday life i've never had any chronic like joint pain or anything but that continued and i was like man i'm bigger stronger faster i feel great seeing that carryover and the kind of the direct correlations between hey good coaching and good benefits and good and, and actual results kind of had me hooked so I thought about after my my junior year like you know what I might finish this degree and go back and get another bachelor's degree in this at some point but then I was like I can go I can I can kind of go the back way and work on it and kind of shadow in the weight room and do that stuff and gets a rather than go the academic route and then get experience, go the experience route and then kind of backdoor it and then go the academic route and mm-hmm. kind of get the experience first and then get the, the letters next. And so I was kind of, I was kind of hooked before I even finished my degree, but I was like, man, I'm you know, 80% done with this degree. I've been, I, if I start over right now, my parents would be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. And then, uh, so once you got out of college, did you get, did you start like your personal training, like right after college, like getting a job or how did that, how did that work getting in? Yeah, man. I, uh, so I decided, it actually was a kind of a hard decision. So I decided, you know, I decided in my mind already, I had a, I had a bunch of buddies playing minor league, couple of major league baseball. And it was like, man, to, to each his own, but like that life sounds terrible you're making nothing you're living on a bus and I sat down with my parents and I was like man like I don't I don't want to I don't think I want to do the after college playing thing and it would have been cool and sometimes I think back like hey maybe I should have just kept my mouth shut and then seen what happened in the draft but then I would have felt kind of weird if some organization had wasted the pick and it was like well I actually don't want to play but Wanted to see my name get called. and uh, So I took a couple weeks off, got home, and I was like, I, I know what I want to do. I don't have – I have a little bit of experience from working out, which isn't real experience. I have a little bit of experience shadowing in the weight room, which is experience but nothing that's an actual qualification. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have to work at like an LA Fitness or something, which is cool fine with me I have nothing better to do like I just finished college it's a it's a job whatever so I applied to all of these gyms locally in the Scottsdale area and one responded 
and gave me a front desk job. So I was working front desk at a little private gym, like in kind of Northish Scottsdale, so five, eight miles away from where I'd grown up. It was awesome. Made a bunch of good relationships. Learned actually, and I hate to trash on anybody, but that was a great experience for me because the gym was run interestingly. So I learned how to run a good training business by learning what not to do. Mm -hmm. And being at the front desk, it was nice getting to learn systems and stuff and, and whether or not those systems were followed or working there, it was nice to get to learn systems. So worked at the front desk there, knew I wanted to get into training. So I'd sit at the front desk and it was like, all right, I'm studying out of this NASM book harder than I studied for anything in like a 400, 500 level college class. And boom, I'm going through it. And they told me, hey, as soon as you get that, you'll, you can you can start training here. So that was kind of push came to shove and finished the NASM stuff. Started training there. Gym closed. I built up a pretty good clientele at that place. Um, that gym closed, took my clientele to a gym that was like a 1.1 miles away. That place closed too, and I found the place that I'm at now that I rent from. And my clients were pumped. They were like, hey, that's great that you're not going to be an employee anymore. We like just directly paying you. Mm -hmm. So I actually have probably half of my clientele, maybe not quite, are clients I've trained since the first couple of months I started training actually. Yeah, very cool. Followed me from one gym to the second to the one now and I've kind of been there along the way. So it's it's cool. It's it is a for anybody who's wondering if they want to get into coaching, if there is one tipping if there is one thing that tipped the scales for me now in retrospect, it's the relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've had clients at the gym that I was working at I've been, they've been clients with me for years and years and they just they don't want to leave because they don't want me to they don't want to like have another trainer and yeah. when I when I left the when I left the gym to uh, work as work for another job I actually they asked me like what which uh, what trainer would be a good fit for them and I said I only really gave them one person because she was training underneath me she knew she knew what I what I like you know taught them and train them and so she knew what to do so i was like this girl knows what she's doing she's gonna smoke your ass and she, you know she, she's a good fit so yeah and they're like well we trust your word so like pretty much all my clients went to her and they're they were they've been happy ever since so yeah yeah i think relationships are huge and i still talk to my clients to this day so and they're oh they're, yeah man. they're awesome so oh, i know I, I have i have clients who moved away who've you know gone to college done whatever and it's it is a great awesome awesome relationship and once you build that trust up it's it's a second to none type of relationship mm -hmm. and, and you're right it is hard when someone moves it's or you know graduates and goes to college or gets done with college and leaves it's it is an interesting it's always i'm always surprised no matter how many times it happens when people are like hey I'm thinking about not leaving because I don't want to have to restart this. And it's like, wow, I, it's always, it always surprises me again, the, how highly they prioritize their training once they've found a fit that works for them. Yeah. Which and, is, and it's great. 
Yeah. And how do you communicate with your clients? Like, do you have like a special way of like, like cue for cues or like the way you try to push them a little bit further? I'm a pretty, I like to pride myself on being pretty like, I'd say I'm a pretty chill coach. I probably am even a little monotone sometimes, but I don't know if it's just the law of attraction or something, but I seem to attract people who don't try to take advantage of it. Like I will, I've, I've done it before. I, I would like to never have to do it, but I've gotten on people's asses before and had to like chew people out and have to come to Jesus talks and stuff. But I've been pretty lucky. I, like I said, I don't know if it's just kind of attracting people that are like you or whatever, but for the most part, you know, I've, when I've asked people like, Hey, do you, do you ever get the feeling that I'm like too much of a hard ass or too easy or what? Most people's answers kind of uniform. and like, no, you're not a jerk, which I appreciate because there are some trainers who are like cracking the whip all the time. I'm like, I'm always on them, always on them. But you don't seem like someone who I would want to try to pull any shit with. Mm-hmm. Which is good because yeah. if they feel like that, then it makes my life easier because I don't have to be a jerk. Mm-hmm. Now, have you like seen other trainers like talk to their clients and like you, you see them like on their phones or anything like that? And have you like talked to them and say like, "Hey, listen, like this is not a good idea," because like I've I've had well not I've had many trainers that are, like always on their phone or you know talking to somebody else and not like like you know focusing in on on their client and like I I've had people come up to me and talk to me and say try to have a conversation with me and I'm like can't right now. I'm with them, so I need to focus with them, or just like say, I'll, I'll I'll see you a little bit later. So, yeah. But have, do you have you ever talked to talk to trainers about that? Or yeah, man, I you know what I've probably I've probably had more. I wouldn't say arguments. I've probably had more conflicts talking to trainers about stuff like that than I've had with clients about their training. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if it's just a defense mechanism or if it's me having not approached it the right way, but I've had workers. And now, now it's nice because I rent from this place and the owner's an awesome dude and he is the one that kind of is like, hey, it's not my business because you just rent from me so you can run your business however you want. If you want to run it in the ground, go ahead. But maybe don't be on your phone or maybe like look at your clients or maybe don't cancel on them all the time. So it's kind of nice for that to be out of my hands now. Mm-hmm. When I was an employee and working with coworkers, there were times when it was like, Hey, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but you continuously see yourself losing clients and are wondering why you can't hold on to a client for longer than a couple months. And why am I not making the money I want to make? And it's like, dude, you're on your phone all the time. And you don't give a shit about your clients. Mm-hmm. I see what you do. You take you take your you know a sixty year old woman at seven a.m. through the same lift that you took a high school senior, a male high school senior for at eight a.m. It's like how do you expect? And I'm I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but if you're going to complain about your the status of your like your financial status or the you know your clientele, then. I'll tell you why it's not what's happening. You just got to care. You got to care about people. Mm-hmm. And that's what bugs me. I've 90% of my clients have had, a, have had a non-perfect 
experience with a coach before. Not the non-athlete clients, people who are just like, hey, I want a trainer and I like having somebody who's programming for me. I don't want to you know, go to the gym and wonder what I do on my own. Mm-hmm. So the normal, like kind of casual gym goers or the non-competitive athlete clients, it seems like every one of them has had a negative relationship or some type of fallout with a trainer before. And it seems always to be something that would be remedied by just, wow, if the trainer or the coach would have just cared a little bit more, the whole thing would have been resolved. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not great. Mm-hmm. I, we joke about it all the time. I got a couple of buddies that train at the same place as me and we're, we're pretty close to the owner and we're always joking around like every day, like so-and-so with their client, so-and-so they're on their phone on Facebook the whole time. And it's, and sooner, sooner rather than later, this person's going to be like, you know what? I can hire somebody who's probably going to charge me the same thing. And it's going to actually like work with me on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and- I'd say, yeah, that's a, that's a big, uh, that's one of the, it's one of the, my pet peeves in, in the industry. Yeah. It's tough. Man. Yeah. I always tell people that are looking for personal trainers I'm, and I always tell them like, go watch, go watch the people, the trainers you think might be a good fit for you and go watch it. Like what they're doing with other clients. And if you see them on the phone a lot, or if you notice anything that you don't like, there's your option to move to to look at another coach or another trainer because, but you're not paying for like a uh, you know a session and just dealing with what they're what they're doing like on their phone all the time. So just kind of like bounce around and just watch every single trainer and what they do and and how you know they talk to their clients or how they move or like you know, and even different ages too. So oh yeah yeah oh yeah no it's a huge it's a huge thing the like we like we were talking about the the client trainer relationship is so intimate if if you're with somebody that you that you don't really like or that you think isn't treating you the right way or isn't you know respecting you or giving you the uh, the amount of attention that you require it's a really tough bad thing and it gives it gives people at least people with a bad taste in their mouth at least people kind of jaded about hiring a trainer in the future so not only is it annoying when you see a trainer with that type of cadence or that type of you know actions it makes it harder for everybody else too because every client that they treat like that scare off mm-hmm. it makes it harder for that trainer's next coach to get them to buy in because they know okay I'm coming from a guy who sat on Instagram the whole time and got me nowhere and seemed not to give a shit so why are you different so you're you're already starting kind of behind the eight ball with somebody and it's not their fault they came from this relationship and this you know kind of not ideal situation so of course they're going to be a little bit hesitant Mm -hmm. it's that's a big uh, it's it's bad and it's and it it sucks seeing from an entry-level trainer at a corporate gym but then you go and you'll see guys who are you know elite performance coaches and you see them working with guys and it's like yeah that that guy's sitting on his phone too and he's working with a guy who's like a you know a running back in the nfl come on yeah yeah come on yeah it's it's, 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 it's super annoying definitely is so 
so I know I know you like like the powerlifting and like Olympic lifting. So what are your two favorite lifts that you like doing, like during a workout? My favorite lifts, I would say, I love deadlifting. I think deadlifting for the regardless of load. I think that deadlift is a good kind of a benchmark. If you're able to pick something up off the ground, whether it's a 600 pound barbell or you know, a box of a cardboard box from Amazon, and you can do it without hurting yourself and you pick it up and you feel pretty good. Chances are you're probably in a pretty good spot physically. So if you're, you know, when my mom or dad goes and picks up something and they, I see him pick it up and they put it on the counter, it's like, all right, good. I feel good about the shape that my parents are in and they're able to pick something up off the ground heavy and not get hurt. Mm-hmm. So I love the deadlift, A, for the, like the carryover. I also love the deadlift because it's the one where it's like, all right, pick something up, slam it down, feels good, looks cool. So that's the, the deadlift is probably my favorite lift. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would say I really love power cleaning because that's another one where it's like, hey, show me a guy who can, you know, show me a guy who can power clean his body weight or more than his body weight. And you're showing me a guy who's probably able to run pretty well, who's probably able to, you know, finish a tackle, who's probably able to jump and decelerate into a landing without getting hurt. So I like power cleaning for me just because it's another one where it's like, hey, if I'm if I'm not able to, you know, catch something and not have to sink my butt to the floor to get under it, I'm probably kind of where I want to be at still. Mm-hmm. And if I'm noticing like, man, 275 felt like 300 pounds today, maybe I need to be catching up on some of the you know accessory stuff. So those are probably my favorite two lists. I wish that bench press and some of that stuff was higher up on my list, but I've now kind of gone the opposite of the high school kid who wants to look jacked. And I kind of don't care how I look. I mean, I, I, I would like not to look terrible, but with a bench press, it's like, I'm not going to win a bench press competition. Like yeah. why? I'm not, I'm not too worried if I'm, if my one rep max is like 335 rather than 330 doesn't matter i'm not going i'm not going anything with that yeah exactly yeah so so um obviously like if you if guys if you if you're listening so his instagram he does if it's like all deadlifts and a lot of squatting so i wanted to kind of pick his brain a little bit on what are good ways to get stronger in those two lifts the deadlifts and the back and the back squat so i would say the number one the number one thing, if you take any of the science out, is just the volume accumulation. The more, if you deadlift, if you do 10 deadlifts a day, in 10 years, you're probably going to be a pretty good deadlifter. Mm-hmm. You're just, you're learning, you're learning how to go through the motion, you're teaching, you're, you're going to let your body kind of find the path of least resistance. And just that accumulation, and it doesn't matter if you're doing one set of 10 or 10 sets of one, you're still picking something up 10 times and you're kind of reinforcing that movement for yourself. So for a squat and a deadlift, I'd say in the long run, it's just volume accumulation. You see guys who have squatted for years and years and years, and they're probably going to be pretty good at squatting and the same with the deadlift. 
Um, I would say to anybody listening, the number one, besides accumulation, the number one tip I have for the deadlift and the back squat is to find somebody who's got a trained eye to assess how you move because there's probably something in there that you can improve on. And if you can fix that one thing, then the accumulation is going to come into play because you're not going to have to worry about getting hurt or moving in a faulty pattern. So my number one tip is know, know what the movement entails so you can do it right. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I mean, in, in the weight room, it's more, I guess, more complicated than just, hey, you want to get better at squatting, go squat. Um, there are a bunch of great accessory movements for both of those. And there are a bunch of great, you know, mobility movements to fix some limitations that you might have on the squat with your ankles, with your hips. The deadlift, I guess, is a little more just kind of like, like, get ready to go. But yeah, my number one tip would be accumulation. Like, don't push it if you really want to get good at deadlifting and squatting and you've got you know you're willing to kind of put the effort in just let time kind of work in your favor and you i promise you will get stronger over time if you just do the you do the work um but the big tip if somebody has the means to reach out even if it's just you know sending a video which happens to me all the time someone will send me a video like hey how does my squat look and that's great because the difference between somebody squatting, you know, 405 comfortably and 315 and feeling a little bit unstable or feeling a little bit crappy or janky under the bar might be something as small as like, hey, like your dorsiflexion is a little shitty. Here's a couple different, you know, mobility movements or a couple, couple little things you might be able to do to help with that. And then boom, all of a sudden that person's like, wow, I feel great. And now under the bar, I'm not shifting weight, I'm doing this and blah, blah, blah. So I would say if you can get if you can get your movement in front of the trained eye and pull take one thing away from that, that may that may do a lot more benefit to you than even, you know, going through and finding some crazy twenty week squat program. Mm-hmm. So just finding a trained eye and then giving yourself time, man. Yeah, yeah. So another thing uh I usually tell my clients with Cal Dietz actually talked about this on the Barbell Shrug podcast. If you curl your big toe on the way going up, it actually fires your glutes and hamstrings, so you actually can get up on those lifts a lot quicker compared to like you know not doing that. Which I yeah. I couldn't believe it, and I was like, no way, this is this can't be this can't be right. So I tried it, and I just shot up like a rocket. I it was amazing. Like so now, like every time I go down and lift my feet, my t- big toe up and then when I'm ready to go up on the lift I'll just curl my big toe in and then just shoot right up so yeah I know and it's it's funny how some of those little cues work wonders and it's as a coach too you find because some some cues they don't mean like some cues mean the same thing like keeping your back flat or you know pinching your, pinch your shoulder blades together balance a glass of water on your back it all means the same thing yep. but but one of those will be the one that resonates with the individual. So it's funny which little cue works for that person versus that person. Yeah. And Cal Deeds is awesome, man. Yeah. I tell people all the time, like, hey, you don't got to understand the physiology behind triphasic training. But if you want your, if you, if you're, if you're one of those guys, you want to impress the girls and you want to make your bench press better, 
run through a full cycle of the of triphasic, and I promise you'll bench way more than you do right now. Oh yeah, and then you can impress the girls and see if you like your jacks in high school. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, say, uh, yeah. Triphasic absolutely works, and it's just another one of those another one of those protocols. Like, hey, if you've got the patience to not go every day and try to find a one rep max, it's gonna work. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now with the the, the COVID nineteen stuff going on, you're doing some. You're doing very little like remote coaching, correct? Yeah, a little bit of remote. So how how is that working with your clients? And like, what kind of like training cycles do you have them on, or you know, anything to help them out? So right now, it obviously kind of throws a wrench in some of the some of the clients' cycles, and now without a barbell, without dumbbells, without stuff. It's what I'm kind of focusing on now. I post a workout every day, just a free one. I kind of, I kind of appreciate the elite FTS, like live, learn, pass on thing. Like if you give out free information to people and you don't charge them for little stuff, it may not come directly back from the person that you gave the advice to, but it'll probably come back and, and benefit you in the long run. So I'm big on like, Hey, right now, everybody's kind of, trying to swim upstream and Mm -hmm. try to stay as in shape as they can and try to stay, you know, not so bored. And so I figured, you know what, I'm going to post a workout every day. I want people to feel like they're cornered into like buying a 12 week body weight program and blah, blah, blah. It's the same as everybody else's. So I'm posting the thing every day and that's kind of just a straight, like strictly, Hey, let's do some body weight stuff, accumulate a little bit of volume come out of this with, you know, you may not be quite as strong under the bar when this ends. You may not be quite as strong off the floor. You may not be quite as fast. You may not be quite as explosive. But right now, the volume that your body can handle, not under load, just with your body weight, doing like couch rear foot elevated split squats or lunges or jogging or body weight squats and push-ups and stuff like that if you're doing if the mechanism's right and you're mechanically sound with those movements you can super super strengthen some of the ligaments tendons so i think there are going to be a lot of people that come out of this who've been kind of stringent with their body weight work that'll come back and be like man my knees feel great and i i racked up a thousand different elevated split squats over a couple months at home Mm -hmm. and now my I've strengthened some joints. I feel great and I'm ready to get back under load. So for my clients, that's kind of been what it is like, Hey, yeah, we're not going to be able to find a three rep max. Like we originally planned this week, six months ago. But when we get back, we're at least going to have made sure that your conditioning stayed up. And if nothing else, you're going to end up with, you know, strengthened tendons and ligaments. Cause we're doing a bunch of body weight, little yeah. stuff. And, trying to just get better at moving if you can move without anything you know without load and you're controlling your body weight well it's probably something that we should go back to more often and i guess kind of a silver lining not a you know you wouldn't wish that a pandemic and having to stay home would be what would kind of drive you back to your roots of being able to move through space and control your your own body weight but Mm -hmm. i guess it's kind of a silver lining people so yeah. that's, that's kind of with my clients right now what we're focusing on nice and so when you actually get back to them training so what percentages do you think you're going to hit with them like right off the bat like pretty much like 50 percent or it'll i'm i'm thinking about 
what I'll, what I will probably do with most people is revert back to the cycle or the percentages of the cycle before this started and work from there with a really, really like large range to work in. Mm -hmm. So somebody who had some stuff at home and was really hammering out work at home and running a bunch and doing a bunch of lunges. And I got some clients who were like, Hey, I'm doing 500 lunges a day. It's like, yeah, man, you may actually come back. Like you may not be a ton stronger, but you may come back and feel like you didn't miss anything. I've got some clients who are, you know, nurses and it's like, I'm literally at the hospital all day and when I'm not, I'm sleeping. Yeah. I, I like, I would love to tell you that I'm going running and, you know, pulling a sled at the park, but I just don't have the time. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to set a pretty big range probably, but most likely I'll go back to the percentages or the, you know, the RPE classifications that these people were working at the month before or the cycle before, and then just kind of see how it rolls out. And if somebody at, you know, 75% of their one rep max feels great. And it's like, all right, man, I guess we're kind of starting back where we're starting where we left off. If somebody feels like that's, man, 75% feels like an RPE 10 today, then okay, maybe we'll drop back and take a couple extra weeks to, to get back to it. But it'll be interesting. It'll be, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of looking forward to it. It'll be an interesting little puzzle to try to figure out with uh, yeah. getting people back up to speed and, and there's no rush, you know, people, especially, especially kids in college and stuff like you got, they're not going back to work. So, no. so there's some people like, Hey man, as soon as gym's open again, I got nothing to do. So I'm going to be sitting on zoom and meetings in the mornings and I have nothing to do. So I'm all yours. So mm-hmm. I think it'll actually be kind of fun. Yeah. Very cool. Very we'll cool. See. <laughs> yeah. So uh, two, you got two last questions. So, uh, if you talk, if you saw, if you actually, if you met a new person that a person that had a new onset of diabetes, what would you tell them? I would tell them, I guess, I guess at any age, I would tell them don't, which was hard, but don't let it get you down. It's yeah. It's something you're going to deal with for the rest of your life now. Like, that is what it is. You're now from now until your last breath, you're going to be giving yourself insulin. It is what it is, but it does not mean at all that you can't live the same quality of life as the guy over there or your husband, your wife, your parents, your brothers, sisters. It's something you got to deal with, but it doesn't mean that your life has to be different. So I think that's, if they ask me one thing, that would probably be mine, you know. Yeah, it's 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 something new, but it doesn't have to infringe on your life. Yeah, awesome, love it. And then, where can people reach you on social media? So my Instagram handle is at coach clancy. Um, I have a Facebook that I admittedly don't update as much as I should. Um, that's CC Fit AZ on Facebook. Um, you can also find me on ccfitaz.com. Um, I'm doing a little bit of work on the website, so there's a couple little video links that are down right now. But Instagram right now is kind of my bread and butter. Uh, I have a TikTok, and I don't love that. So <laughs> you can find me on there if you want to see stupid videos. But it's uh, Instagram's kind of my bread and butter. I'm usually pretty good about responding to stuff. Um, anybody out there who's watching, 
I I do get a lot of random videos of a squat or a deadlift or a clean or whatever. Like I may not get back to you in five minutes, but I welcome, you know, advice, questions, anything. I, I love connecting with people. And so that's where you can find me on social media. I love connecting with people. Obviously we've got a relationship now and I dig that. So yeah. Awesome. Anybody wants to- so we got cut off in the last part of the episode. Uh, the last part was mainly just thanking Connor for being on my podcast. I really do appreciate it. And it's been a long time coming that we've actually talked to, to talk to each other instead of using uh, Instagram for comments or anything like that. So once again, Connor, thank you very much for being on my podcast. It truly does mean a lot. And I'm looking forward to another one with you.